This is the Christian Circle Podcast and you're listening to Pamela Fernandez where we have conversations about Christian living. Here's the show. This is Charles Johnston and uh, I'm a uh, regular contributor on the Christian Circle Podcast. I uh, have, I'm a writer and a blogger. My website is uh, nowthatimcatholic.com and I have a Facebook page by the same name. And also my first book came out uh, a couple months ago, The Mass, available on Amazon. Okay. So uh, who are we talking about today? Today we're going to be talking about Pope St. John Paul II. And you're a big fan of his, right? Uh, yeah, I'm a pretty big fan. <laughs> <laughs> I think I say that about all the saints we talk about. But <laughs> so far we haven't talked about, I mean, I guess I could say I'm a fan of all saints. Mm, you know? Okay. So but yeah, John Paul II really... I mean, because I've only been Catholic now officially for uh, a few years. But I mean, I've been Catholic for a lot longer than that. It mm-hmm. took me a long time to you know, really study my way into the church. And I resisted as much as I could, but I eventually just kind of gave in. But really, I mean, he was a pope when I was growing up. He was pope since 78. I think it was 77 or 78. Mm-hmm. And I was born in the 80s. So, I mean, he was the pope all the way from the time I, before I was born, you know, how many years ago, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. I guess a little longer than that, yeah. 13, 14 years ago yeah. when he died. So, I mean, he was, most of my life, he was the Pope. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it was kind of, it was kind of like a steady, a steady hand at the head of the ship, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think um, he, he, when he became Pope, the church was at, um, I think, the stage where a lot of changes were needed, a lot of changes were were happening, there was a bit of turmoil, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, too, the Iron Curtain was across Europe. Yes, you know? yeah. And half of Europe's Catholics were behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah. And just, I mean, just humanity itself, even though, you know, some of the, the nations on the other side weren't Catholic nations, they were still humans, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, like, the Russians and everything, they were all, and they were all being oppressed. And, and because... Carol Vitea, you know, John Paul II, because he he knew oppression firsthand, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and he knew what it was like to be oppressed. So he really identified with the oppressed people of Eastern Europe, him, you know, being Eastern European himself, being a mm-hmm. Pole. And uh, so it was really, you know, it was a very tumultuous time, not just in the church, but in the world, too. And it was the height mm-hmm. of the Cold War, mm-hmm. you know, and that's when he came came along. The right guy for the uh, right guy for the job. For the, the job, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, and he's come from a background which I think reminds me a lot of uh, Saint Teresa of uh, Lisieux because, uh, like her, he's he loses his mother very very early and he loses several members of his family early in life and mm-hmm. and you you find that his childhood is is quite painful actually. Yeah, well, I mean, when he he was coming of age. Uh, I can't remember exactly when he was born, but he was a young man when the Nazis invaded Poland. Mm. You know, so you got on one hand you got the Nazis and the the Nazis and the Soviets just kind of like split Poland in half in 1939. Mm. Yeah. And then the Nazis occupied it and just completely devastated the country. And then after the Nazis leave, then you got the Soviets come right in on top of them, and were just as bad. Mm. You know. Yeah. So it's like you couldn't catch a break. The Poles never could catch a break. It seemed. But the thing is, they were so resilient to it because and they're so faithful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Poland is like a vibrantly Catholic country. Very, yeah. Whereas the rest of Europe 
is just fallen by the wayside. I mean, even Ireland, look at Ireland, what's happened yeah. just in this last year. Yeah. So, I mean, you really got to tip your hat to the polls. They've known nothing but suffering for a hundred years. And look, look at how faithful they are. You know, so I think it's inspiring. But he, he came from that background, the same as, you know, all the other great Polish saints. He, he's not actually somebody who admits to always wanting to be a priest, right? He himself said that um, it was it was a great mystery. And he's had good role models. Like he had a, a father who encouraged him in his faith. He's had mentors, uh, bishops. Um, so this is a man who is who who chose his vocation, but still mysteriously was called by God. Right, yeah, because, I mean, the vocation is being called to a task, you know? Mm. So that's what it is. That's why so many people go to seminary and don't end up becoming ordained is because yeah. they weren't, you know, they're discerning. Yeah. And that's a problem that a lot of culture, you know, the culture has today is because vocation, not just the priesthood is a vocation, but marriage itself is a vocation. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people don't discern their vocation to marriage. They yeah. just assume. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes. Well, and that's a problem. Or just assume not to get married, too. You know, cohabitation mm. is like almost a 90% in the West. But he was called to the priesthood. He really he was an actor. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> he had a whole little acting troupe, an underground acting troupe. And they'd play out uh, Polish, like, uh, kind of folk stories, you know? Because mm-hmm. so that, that was one of the things that the Nazis purged immediately was the Polish intelligence, you know, like the, the writers and poets and the, the artists and stuff mm-hmm. to try to destroy... Polish identity, so he kind of kept that alive, him and his little acting troupe, mm-hmm. during the war. One of the things I, I think is really impressive about John Paul II, not, I mean, a lot of things that he done was impressive, yeah. so it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to, I mean, he was Pope from 70, late 70s till like uh, 2004, I think it was, so I mean, he had one of the longest reigns as Pope. Yeah. He visited the most countries, he was extremely well-traveled, he went mm-hmm. all over the world. You know, seeing people, visiting people, making pastoral visits. He came to America a few times. Yeah. Uh, but one of the, the things that I think was so impressive was he really spoke to the dignity of the human person. Mm. You know, mm. because because he had seen you know Nazism and communism up close, because he had kind of lived through that system, he knew exactly what the people were going through. So when he spoke about it, it wasn't just like, you know, someone saying like, oh, we're with you in heart and soul, you know, it was really heartfelt. Yeah. You know, people knew that he knew what they were experiencing. You know, they really, and he was, you know, he really inspired the solidarity movement mm. that eventually brought the downfall of communism in uh, Poland, which mm-hmm. then spread, you know, it kind of, it was like a domino effect. Yeah, yeah. I actually heard a story when he went back to Poland in 1978 uh, when he first became Pope, he went back to Poland, and they didn't want to let him come. Mm-hmm. But they knew that if they said no, because he made it pretty public that he wanted to visit his home country. Yeah. You know, they knew that they've got millions of Catholic Poles that would probably just burn the country to the ground <laughs> if they said no. We're not going to let the first Polish Pope come back yeah. and visit. So they let him come back and visit. And I heard a story that there was a KGB agent that was there at the airport when he landed, and millions of people came out to see him. Mm-hmm. And he wired back to Moscow and said, we've lost. Okay. You know, just right there, he knew that this was the beginning of the end. The mm-hmm. beginning of the beginning of the end, you know, because yeah. it was another 12 years until the end of the Soviet Union. But just that, without firing a single shot, mm-hmm. John Paul II brought down 
this, you know, empire that had, you know, enslaved so many people from, you know, Berlin all the way to the, uh, you know, the North Pacific, like yeah. <laughs> all of Northern Asia, you know, Eastern Europe, all of that was all controlled by the Soviet Union which was officially an atheistic state, like they were hostile to God, mm. you know? And there's actually evidence that when he was shot in St. Peter's Square, mm. the man that shot him was put up to it by the KGB. Mm, okay. You know, because yeah. he, was such a, he was such a threat to their system, basically. And that he could bring down that without starting a war, without killing a single person, and by even forgiving the man who tried to assassinate him. You know, he went to his jail cell and forgave him. Yeah. Just by showing that the love of God and the dignity of the human person, every person deserves to be treated as a human being. He just, he changed world history. And I think that's amazing. And it's a good lesson for, I think, uh, people of our times right now, because we, uh, we are now just, we all want to be activists and radicals. But quite frankly, with just prayer and, and, and being a good person, you can probably win a lot of battles, right? Right, yeah. I mean, he won more of the Stalin famously said, how many battalions does the Pope have? Mm. You know, <laughs> obviously he doesn't have any battalions. I think he's got a couple hundred Swiss guards. <laughs> they ain't going to be doing much, but he's got 1.2 billion people, you yeah. know, yeah. that's yeah. his army. And we might not all be armed and we might not be marching anywhere, but we're all praying, hopefully. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> that's the hope, you know, but if it's. If 1.2 billion Catholics got together and prayed for something, yes. really imagine what what could be done. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that would be unbelievable. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and the March for Life's coming up. Yeah. Uh, Are you going this week? No, I'm not going to be. I'm not going. I actually, I'd love to go, but I used to live in DC, oh, so I don't okay. know why I'd never go when I lived there. Now that I don't live there, now I want to go, but it's just yeah, it's too far. It's too you know? far. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's coming up. I have a lot of friends that are going though, okay. and it's coming up soon. And if you know, if all the Catholics just in America yeah. would get together behind that cause, you know, yeah, it really it, prayer does change things. Prayer is powerful. And I think a lot of people that that kind of that kind of like in the modern mindset, mm. you know, there's a lot of Catholics and a lot of Christians in general that think like prayer, like oh, you know, what about prayer? Why pray? Mm. Prayer can change things. Yeah, you know. Prayer is powerful. Yeah. I mean, God knows what we want before we even ask it. But yeah. just like a child, when my kids come to me and say, Dad, will you get me this? I know they need food. Yeah. <laughs> it's a basic human need. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when they come and they ask me for food, and I'm like, oh, yeah, they're hungry. I'm going to give them food. Not that God forgets that we're hungry. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. God wants us to come to him as a child yeah. and ask him for what we need. And really, the protection of human life is a pretty big need. <laughs> yeah. So I think we should all join together and pray for that. You know, if we're not there in person, we should at least be there in spirit at the March for Life. Yeah. And I think it was uh, John Paul who said, right, give me, um, give me, I think, uh, one million people saying the rosary every day and we right. can win anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's his battalions right yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> the army of the rosary. And he was quite devoted to Mary, right? In fact, a lot of people oh, credit yeah. his uh, the the failed assassination to her. I mean, he he practically yeah, said she a, saved his, his life. His Episcopal motto was uh, "Totus Tuus," mm. and also I I think it was the assassination attempt on him was on was it the feast of Our Lady of Fatima. Yeah, yeah, something it was like a, that. It was yeah. a Marian yeah. feast day. Yeah. 
That's why if you look at a lot of... St- yeah, it was Our Lady of Fatima because they just installed a statue of Our Lady of Fatima in my parish. Okay. And in her crown, there's a bullet, and that represents the bullet because after he was shot, he took... I guess the surgeons took the bullet out of him. Mm-hmm. And he placed it in her crown. Mm. I don't know if it was at... I think it was at Fatima. Oh, okay. I think he went to Fatima and placed it in her crown. Okay. And that's why... Because that was the pat- my parish priest said, you'll notice there's a bullet in her crown. I was like, yeah, there is. What? <laughs> you know, what's up with that? And he explained, that's because John Paul II God took the bullet and placed it because, yeah, he credited the survival of the intercession, blessed mother. <laughs> and what about his uh, work at the Second Vatican Council? Now, I know a lot of people are going to be divided on this because there are lots of fans of, of various branches of Mass. But um, he was quite active in pushing for the Second Vatican Council and the reformation of the Church. Yeah, well, if you actually read the documents of the Second Vatican Council, it doesn't really... You know, like, uh, Latin was still supposed to have a place of honor in the liturgy, and Gregorian mm. chant was... You know, yeah. it's kind of like, after... If you read the Council documents, and then you look, because, like I said, I was born in 84, so mm-hmm. I have no first-hand knowledge of what was going on in the <laughs> 70s. But from what I understand, talking to some old-school Catholics that have been around, the 70s was a crazy time when people were trying to implement the changes from the Council, you know? Mm. And it seemed like, just by looking back at it, looking through the documents and stuff, that the church, like, swung far one way, you know? Okay. Like, they said, oh, we're too closed off, we're too closed-minded, mm-hmm. so let's just throw the doors wide open and throw out tradition altogether. Mm-hmm. And just completely... Mo- and that's where you see, you know, pictures of, like, clown masses and things like that. Oh, okay. You know? I didn't know that's about just, that. That's just... Yeah, there was some crazy stuff going on. And, <laughs> and it just, you know, the pendulum swung all the way to the left. Well, then people try to come around and start correcting it, and that's where you have... Um, you know, like uh, the Society of St. Pius X, mm, yeah. you know, where they kind of go into a state of schism from uh, ordaining bishops without permission of Rome. They're they're now, they're not technically in a state of schism. They're in uh, what's in a regular state, they call it. Mm. But it's still not, they're still not completely in communion with Rome. They still reject the Second Vatican Council, so they're not, you know, they're still kind of out there on the fringe. Mm-hmm. But they swung back hard the other way, kind of a reactionary thing mm. you know there's a revolution and there's always a reaction to the revolution yeah and uh so i think it kind of i think if by reading the documents of the council because i'm a very traditional person myself <laughs> if you read the documents yeah. of the council it really isn't what happened in the 70s like that can't be blamed on the council itself mm. you know mm-hmm. that was kind of just wild and crazy times people just kind of ran with it it's like when a, a court decision comes out that's completely off the wall and they're reading the same document as another court that just ruled on you know, mm. the other way. And you're like, how is both these courts ruling on the Constitution, you know? Yeah. But that's the way, you know, just it went one way and then it come back. But I think, uh, you know, it's kind of settling down. It takes a while for councils really. I mean, between First Vatican Council and the Second Vatican Council was 100 and, 110 years, I think. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it takes a while to kind of find their equilibrium, I guess you call mm, it. Mm. And I think we're in a state of equilibrium right now, except for the clamor for uh, various different versions of, of the past coming back now. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, you got the extraordinary form and the ordinary yeah. form. I think as long as the liturgy is reverently celebrated, mm. you know, I don't think it, I don't think ordinary or extraordinary, I, I see in the future eventually... Now, people might want to crucify me for this, but I 
I see that the two will probably be reconciled and there will only be one form of the Mass mm-hmm. in the Western Rite. Mm-hmm. And it will probably be a very reverent in English or in the, the vernacular, mm-hmm. but more like the extraordinary form. Yeah. You know, yeah. but if you see growth in parishes are all either extraordinary form yeah, parishes, that's true, or uh, parishes that have a very reverent ordinary yeah, form. That's true. Yeah, you know the parishes that have the old seventies uh, folk music, you know, and like yeah. the, they're not very. I mean, you know, when you go into it, sometimes like when I'm traveling around, and I go into a parish. Yeah, you can just you can just kind of tell yeah. what the liturgy is going to be like when you go in, and like there's no. They don't have the stations across on the wall. Mm. Oh, they don't have pews. They have just like folding chairs. Not <laughs> even like there's a certain. I went to one church on on my travels, and there was no uh, kneelers oh. because they didn't want anyone to kneel. Oh, okay. You know? oh, okay. And I was like, "What is? What's up with this?" Yeah. <laughs> you know. And they were like, "Oh, we don't kneel anymore because you know that got through it all with the Second Vatican Council." And I was like, "Have you guys been to any other parishes in the past fifty years?" <laughs> That didn't, what are you, you know, like, what are you guys smoking here? <laughs> but, yeah, they got a little too much incense going on. <laughs> or no incense, that was the problem. But you can just kind of tell, and like I said, I think it's going to, I think it's eventually going to kind of come together into one form, not the ordinary or extraordinary, but it's going to be a very reverent, because that's where, the, that's what the, the younger, this younger generation, of which I'm kind of on the older edge of, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> they want reverent liturgy they, yes. they flock to the latin mass yeah you know and that's what they want they want i went to at my parish they have a teen mass on uh, sunday nights mm-hmm. it's at the five it's the life teen mass and i just assumed teen mass was going to be very you know i don't know how to put it like childish or, <laughs> you know i don't know like i thought it was gonna be like a kid's choir or yeah. My son was in the hospital a couple months ago, and I thought I was a man. I, I missed the 9, I missed the 11. I didn't think he was going to help that night, mm-hmm. but then they just released us at 4 o'clock. Okay. So, okay. so I dropped him off with my wife at home, and uh, I got his dinner and everything. And I said, you know, I got time to make the 5 o'clock mass. It's a teen mass, but, you know, mass is mass, and yeah. I'll go. And I went to it. They chanted Gregorian chant during the wow. communion. Like, that was the communion song, was uh, mm. the uh, Pange Lingua. Okay, yeah. wow. <laughs> and and uh, the entrance hymn was, I can't even remember what the entrance hymn was, uh, Sub Alter Dei, let's go to the altar of God in Latin. Wow. You know? Yeah. And I was like, wow, I was shocked. <laughs> then I felt bad for prejudging that I thought it was going to be, you know, like uh, someone sitting with a guitar on a campfire singing songs. Yeah. So it was completely different, but that's what the younger generation wants. Hmm. You know, they want that reverent liturgy, there was actually incense being used, too. Yeah, So th- wow. that's, you know, that's what they want. And so eventually, you know, that's where hopefully people in the, you know, in the hierarchy will see this is where the growth, mm. you know, if we make ourselves like the world and we make our liturgy just like anything else that you can get anywhere else, well, then why, why be Catholic? Yeah. You know, yeah. if you downplay the real presence of the Eucharist, if you yeah. downplay any difference of, Catholic versus any other kind of Christianity, if you downplay the liturgy to where it's just like a campfire meeting, mm. <laughs> you know, then why be Catholic? Yeah. We have something special. Yeah. You know, emphasize that. <laughs> but I mean, that's completely, I guess we've gone completely off topic. <laughs> but I'm very passionate about the liturgy. Yeah, I can tell. And, but it's a, it's a good thing because, um, like you were saying, you know, you visit a parish, you can tell the spirit is moving there. 
Um, and right. that's, in a way, all of this uh, liturgy is all part of the new evangelization that uh, John Paul was talking about, right? He yes. wanted us to get into the, the act of evangelizing. We're not going to be just ordinary people sitting in our pews doing nothing anymore. Right, and the new evangelization is basically re-evangelizing places that have already been evangelized, yeah, you know? Yeah, that's true. Like, that's what, that's what who needs the new evangelization the most is these, you know, supposedly Christian nations. Yeah, yeah. You know, like like Ireland and yeah. like America. Yeah. You know, the, the mission territories of the past few hundred years mm-hmm. are now sending us yes, priests. Yes, priests. The, that's yeah, true. Yeah, in yeah. A way, I mean, I think it's amazing. My parish priests are from an order called the Apostles of Jesus. Yeah. And they were founded in Africa, uh, <laughs> whatever it was, like 100 years, not 100 years ago, like 50 years ago, 1960-something. Okay. And Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania is the three countries that my three priests are from. Mm. And those were mission territories. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, there yeah. was, we were sending Irish priests to Uganda 100 years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's true. To evangelize the Ugandans, you know? And now... They're sending us priests, and mm. I think it's terrific. Yeah, it's sad that they have to. Yeah, you know, it's sad that we need priests from other nations to come and re-evangelize us because <laughs> we've lost so touch with you know. Yeah, with the, the foundation of Western society is built on Christian values. Yeah, you know? that's true. Yeah. So it's sad that we have to be re-evangelized, but I think it's great. I think it's I go kick in the rear end. You know, like <laughs> look, guys, you know, there's there's all kinds of. The past couple of priests that have been in my parish, too, have been from uh, Burma, mm, and wow. uh, there was a priest from India, okay. and then we've got priests from Africa. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you know, come on now. We're a nation of 300 million people. We need yeah. to start sending priests out. Yeah, you know? yeah. We need to be a net exporter, not importer of priests. <laughs> I think even in our parish, we have one Filipino, we have one Sri Lankan, and then we have one Greek. And the neighboring parish has got three Colombian priests. So we're actually right. in, all... In New York? Yeah. Yeah, in New yeah. York. Well, see, when I was growing up in New York, every priest was Irish or Italian. That's true. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that was the way it was. I mean, all priests had an Irish accent. And it was kind of like a, a movie stereotype. You know, the New York priest comes in to the fire department. You know, he's like the chaplain at the fire department. He's got an eye straight from Dublin. But that was reality. <laughs> Yeah. You know? Yeah. It wasn't all of them, but I mean, it was a lot. It was a, a good chunk of them. Yeah. And now, I mean, now it's, I think in Ireland, those parishes are staffed by, <laughs> not by par- Irish priests, you know? And now that's sad thing, too, is that, that small island, you know, it's only got however many, five, five million people live in Ireland. Mm-hmm. It's not that many. Yeah. And they would send missionaries all around the world. Yeah. And now it's contracted so bad there that, you know, you know, they legalized abortion this yeah. year. Yeah. And then within the same year, now they have taxpayer funding for abortion. Mm. You know? Yeah. It's like just completely. Oh, yeah. Completely. It's small. terrible. Yeah. In a way, uh, if you look at it, it uh, this hundred year reversal of where the church is spreading, it also shows the growth, the birth, the life cycle of the church, right? We're evolving, yeah. we're changing, we're helping each other out. And that's how the church is supposed to function. We, we, yeah. wherever it shows the universality. Of yes. The church, the church is yeah. Catholic. Yeah. You know, it's, the church is as much, you know, the Catholic church is as much Catholic in Uganda mm-hmm. as it is in New York City. Yeah. Or in Mumbai or yeah. in Mexico City. You know, it's, it's, it's the same. And I really do think that is one of the strongest 
you know, the four marks of the church, one holy Catholic and apostolic yeah, church. Yeah. The, the Catholicity of the church is extremely important mm. because, you know, you, you go, if you go around America, a lot of churches are very either racially segregated and not like they don't allow black members or they don't allow white members, mm -hmm. but it's just kind of like, that's the black church over there. And that's yeah. the white church. Yeah, and then there's like, did. it's also, yeah. it's also segregated along like, uh, uh, economic lines too, you know, like there's mm. the rich, you know, the rich folks go over there and this is kind of a poor church over here, but the Catholic church, you walk into the Catholic church in any, Anywhere. any parish in America yeah. and you're just as likely to see anyone of any ethnicity of anyone, you know, of any economic strata, Correct. you know, yeah. Yeah. you're, you're just as likely to sit next to a millionaire, <clears throat> the gardener, yeah. you know, like all of that all together. And it's all because we're all called to the same, you know, Christ calls everyone. Yeah. So I really think that the segregation of the church is really, I think it's a terrible thing. And even in Eastern Europe where the, the Orthodoxy, because they're, the Orthodox churches are, you know, there are kind of our brother churches, you know, they're apostolic too. When they, they trace their lineage back to the apostles and they have apostolic succession too yeah. through their bishops, but they're very ethnocentric. You know, you got the Bulgarian Orthodox church, you mm. have the Greek Orthodox they're very nationalistic, you know, yeah, yeah. and that's really, a, I think, a black mark against orthodoxy, too, mm. is they're not united the same way that the Catholic Church is. Yes, yeah. and, and, and we're dynamic at the same time, like, uh, I think it's the fruit of the Spirit, but then we're the same, in the same, in a right. way, yeah. So, uh, apart from this, um, John Paul also had a very good relationship with Mother Teresa. I think we're going to be doing one episode on her. Uh, what was their um, equation like? Because they were both, at, I think, at the contemporaries as well as uh, spearheading change in a number of areas together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she started her mission long before he came on the scene. But I mean, she was, she was, <laughs> uh, she was just like John Paul II. I mean, he had the longest pontificate. She had a very long run in uh, Calcutta. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it was like fifty years she was there, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they were, uh, there's a picture I love of them walking together, and they're both very elderly, you know, they're old Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, wow, <laughs> that's just, look at the holiness here, Yeah. you know, yeah. but yeah, they were, they were good friends, and uh, very similar spirituality, too, very devout prayer life. Mm. And and that's a good thing about saints, right? In, in, when they are contemporaries, uh, they are constantly in touch with each other, with, uh, about their spirituality. Uh, about their mission, about their uh, vocations, all of that stuff. It's not a lonely journey, whatever you're doing. No, no, yeah. I mean, we're all members of the body, you know, St. Mm -hmm. Paul said. Yeah. You, know, you yeah. can't, the hand can't look at the feet and say, well, yes. I don't need you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's all, no matter what you're doing in the church, if you're, if you're working towards, you know, if you're working to build up the kingdom, if you're one of the workers in the field, as mm -hmm. Jesus said, you know, the, harvesters in the field if you're doing that and you're working to build up the kingdom your work is just as important as anyone else's work mm -hmm. you know yeah. if you're running the soundboard so that father's mic turns on and turns <laughs> off at the right time you know yeah so that like when he stands and says pray brethren and then his mic isn't working if you're the if you're the soundboard operator and you're doing that your work is just as important as the usher you know as the yeah. deacon as anyone else True. or if you're working in catholic media or whatever yeah. Whatever you're doing is just as important as anyone else. No matter, we're all in, you know, we're all in it together. Yeah. No matter how we're small you're. We're all working towards the same goal. Yeah. 
So um, what about his um, paper on suffering? Because he's he, of course, suffered himself uh, being uh, going through Parkinson's. But yeah. he had a very extensive idea that we should suffer for Christ and suffer with Christ. Yeah. You know, he really took a lot of inspiration from uh, Paul, St. Paul's letter, where he said, I... I rejoice in my sufferings mm. that I'm building up what is lacking in the body of Christ. Yeah. You know, when Paul said that he had this thorn in his side, that yeah. he prayed three times for God to remove it, and God said, no, because in your weakness, you know, <laughs> my grace is manifest in yeah. you. And he said, my grace is sufficient for, for you. you. And yeah. that's what he said. He said, so I rejoice in my suffering. For so what is lacking, because that's, Paul said that, what is lacking in the body of Christ? But what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, I would say? Nothing's lacking in the suffering of Christ except for our participation in it, mm. you know? And that's what John Paul II said. That's that's us taking up our cross and following after Christ. We're mm. participating by uniting our sufferings, however minor they may be, you know? Yeah. Compared to being whipped and marched through the streets of Jerusalem <laughs> and then nailed to a cross to slowly die by drowning in your own fluids, you know? Our stubbing our toe in the middle of the night is pretty minor. Yeah. But we unite our sufferings with Christ, and it makes them meaningful. Yeah. You know, suffering can either be meaningless or it can be meaningful. Yeah. You know, and if you unite, if you if you offer it up, and you hear that all the time, like offer it up. You know. Yeah, yeah. When I first started hearing, I was like, "What are you talking about?" Because <laughs> I never grew up Catholic, so I, mean, I never heard that before. And I heard it just like two years ago for the first time. Well. I said something like, I'm not feeling too good. Well, offer it up. Offer what up? Offer <laughs> up your sufferings. To who? What are you talking about? And then I kind of had it broke down to me what it meant. And it is, it's really a beautiful thing because you can yeah. unite your sufferings with Christ and make them efficacious, make them meaningful. You know, yeah. you can offer it as a sacrifice to God, mm -hmm. whatever you're going through. Rather than complaining about it, you pray and say, you know, God, I offer this to you that you can use my sufferings to, you know, further advance the kingdom. And a lot of saints had this idea, right? I think uh, yeah. Padre Pio had it, uh, Catherine of Siena. All of these saints had oh, this yeah, idea of, of... yeah. All the saints that suffered with the stigmata, 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 too. They all, they all offered that, that yeah. up. They were so united to Christ that the <laughs> wounds of Christ actually appeared on their bodies. Mm. But yeah, that's what John Paul II, he... Like we talked about his upbringing and living under communism and all that. But then also he had Parkinson's for mm. got like 20 years. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And... Really, I mean, towards the end, it was heartbreaking. To watch him, also, yeah. Yeah, to watch him, and he would, he would sit there on the papal throne, you know, he had his, his crozier, and he would, like, hold on to it. Like, he, it really was a beautiful image, though. Like, he's sitting there, he's holding on to the crucifix, yeah. you know, like, that was the only thing keeping him up, yeah. you know? And it was, like, poetic that yeah. that's, what, that's what he's holding on to, you know? But, uh, yeah, it was, it was sad to watch. It was hard to watch towards the end how you know how advanced the Parkinson's was and uh, apart from that um, what else his idea about uh, family I mean he was talking about the domestic church in uh, yeah. families long long before we could even understand how divorces were going to break out as an epidemic in in the church so um, this man is is got vision that was like 20 yeah. 30 years ahead yeah, he said in that in that paper, uh, uh, that encyclical that you told me, uh, Familius uh, Consortio. Yeah, yeah. That was it. Yeah, he said that the social means of communication. I was like, wow. 
he said social media back, yeah. <laughs> back in 1981, <laughs> you know, but he said the social media, the communication is changing the dynamics of marriage. Mm. And it, yeah, it, it's when you read his papers, a lot of his like encyclicals and stuff, it's like he wrote them 20 years after he actually wrote mm. them. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's, that's how forward thinking they are. Yeah. It's just like, uh, Paul the six, um, uh, Humane Vitae, mm, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. That everything that he said was going to come to fruition in Humane Vitae, yeah. And that was how long ago was that? Was that fifty years ago now? Yeah, more than that, I think. Yeah, so that was he wrote Humane Vitae 50, 55 years ago. It might have been sixty three. He wrote it, in. and now all what he said was going to come true. Come true, yeah. Come true, yeah. It's like we're reaping the the you know the fruits of this you know the seeds that was planted during mm. the cultural revolution of the 60s. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We're reaping the harvest now. But that's the same with John Paul II. That was, uh, that encyclical, he wrote in 1981. Mm. And now look at, I mean, you know, just the families, that family is the bedrock of society. It really is. Because before there was, before there was the people of God in the church or the people of God as in Israel, you know, the, the, mm. the first covenant, yeah. Before God made a covenant with Moses, before he made it with Noah, before he made it with Adam and Eve. There was a covenant with Adam. And Adam and Eve was the first family. Yeah. You know, the family was literally it's at the very beginning of the Bible is the family. Yeah. And that's the, the foundation of everything is built on it. That's why the family is called the domestic church. Church, yeah. You know, yeah. it's everything's built on the family. And that's why oppressive governments, you know, <clears throat> whether yeah. they're communists or whatever, they attack the church and they attack the family. The family, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's why they do it is because that's, if you don't have the church and you don't have the family, well, then you have to look to the state yeah. for structure yeah. and for guidance. And that's why they, they know what they're doing. Yeah. And, and that's what John Paul II was saying, is that the family is so important because if the family is strong and the church is strong, society will be so stronger. much the better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they'll look at the problems we see in society and a lot yeah. of it stems from breakdowns of the family, family and yeah. people leaving church yeah most of these papers that he's written uh you can tell that um they've been inspired i mean this is not just uh the man talking but this is basically um really something that is uh spiritually inherent that comes through <sighs> the spirit and then it's a lesson for us even as our current popes write that they are looking at the future that we don't see yet right yeah, it's like they're looking off beyond the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, my favorite John Paul II encyclical is uh, Ratio at Fides. Okay. You know, faith and reason. Mm, okay. And it really, you know, because a lot of people say, like, well, science versus faith, mm. like they're two diametrically opposed things, but some of the greatest scientists in history were Catholics. Were Catholics, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, George Lemaitre discovered the Big Bang. Yeah. You know? So a lot, of, a lot of great scientists were Catholics, and faith and reason aren't, you know, they aren't opposed to each other. Like, you know, like the new atheist would make you believe. Mm, yeah. You know, and they say things like, well, who created God? And mm. they think they really got you, like, that's a real gotcha moment. <laughs> and you say, like, well, the definition, the very definition of God is something that's outside of time and space. Mm. You know, God's not made of matter. That's what yeah. you're not getting here. You know, yeah, yeah. like that's the whole thing is God's outside the matter. God's a necessary being, not a contingent being. But it's like people just discarded philosophy, you know, altogether. And it's yeah. it's like scientism has become a religion. Yeah. And so I think Ratio Fides is really 
if you're going to combat the new atheism, you know, like Dawkins mm. and uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and all them guys, if you're going to try to enter into the, that battle, you need to read uh, Ratio at Fides. In fact, uh, I went, we, we were in Prague for Christmas and uh, in this, they have like 80 churches in Prague alone. But they are a country which has the highest number of atheists. And uh, you know Jedis, right? You know what Jed Jedis are? Like from Star, Star Wars? Wars? Yeah, that has yeah. been identified as a main religion in Czech Republic. And really? Yeah, so much so that they've actually uh, erected a statue of the Dark Lord or the Dark Knight. I've not watched Star Wars, but the, <laughs> the, the Dark something, yeah. Right. And his statue has been put at the National Museum. Gosh. Yeah, it's it's crazy, but this is how society is changing, unfortunately. And see, the thing is, atheism isn't the natural state of humanity. Yeah, you know, it isn't like it isn't like before Christianity came along, everyone was atheist. Everyone throughout history has worshipped something. Something, yeah, that's true. you know. And if you're not worshiping God, you're gonna worship false gods, as in paganism, mm. or you're gonna worship yourself. Yeah. And that's what really, a lot of these atheists aren't really atheists. They've made themselves into gods. Yeah. I don't know what you call that. Egoists. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know what you call a self-worshipper, but that's what they've become. Or they worship science. Mm. And like I said, I'm not opposed to science at all. I think science is great. But when you make science the highest, you know, above reason and above philosophy, and you make anything has to be proven by the scientific method, but you aren't applying the scientific method to your own principles there. You know, you're mm -hmm. saying it has to be proved. Well, God's outside of matter. And, well, how can you prove? It's a philosophical argument. Yeah. The existence yeah. of God. You know, it's not a scientific argument. You can't measure it. You can't measure something that's not made of matter. Yeah. And so they created this whole new religion of doubt, basically. <laughs> <laughs> they worship doubt. But you're going to worship something. Yeah. And if it isn't God, it's going to be something else. You're going to make something into a God. And that's just the natural state of humankind. I mean, ever since, go all the way back to the cave drawings. It wasn't yeah. cavemen sitting sitting around wondering how they made themselves out of the mud. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they thought something made them, but they were right. So all of these things um, about John Paul II, what is, what is it that we can practically do as Christians to imitate him or to take his advice and make it make it our own? Uh, prayer. I mean, mm. he was a he was a very very devout. He had a very devout prayer life. Yeah. You know, like you said, he was very devoted to the Rosary. Yeah. He actually was extremely devoted to the Chapel of Divine Mercy too. Mm. Yes, yes. He was the one that had that because it was a bad translational error yeah. in like the seventy or sixties. He was the one that got that all sorted out. Yeah. And so he uh, he was a big devotee, I guess you'd say, of uh, Saint Faustina, Saint Faustina, and Divine yeah. Mercy. Yeah. So, I think if you want to imitate John Paul II, I think the biggest thing would be to pray more. Mm. You know, yeah. and that's a thing that we all could. You know, if you're praying for five minutes a day, pray for six. Mm. If you're praying for two hours a day, pray for three. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever whatever your prayer life is, you can always you know crank it up a little bit more. Yeah. And uh, I think he proved that because he was the Pope, the leader of 1.2 billion Catholics, yeah. and he had time to pray a lot. Yeah. You know, you would make you don't find time to pray. I can't remember who said this. You don't find time to pray. You make time to pray. Mm. It's a very important distinction. Especially if you're busy, you do it more. <laughs> yeah. 
especially if you're busy, yeah. Because I heard, uh, someone told me, I can't remember who it was, again, uh, an unsourced quote, but uh, said, don't, instead of saying, it was like a New Year's resolution thing, instead of saying, I don't have time for that, say, that's not important to me. Mm. You know? And so if you say that, like if someone says, like, have you, you know, have you prayed today? Have you read the Bible today? Don't say, I don't have time for that. Say, that's not important to me. Yeah. Because if you don't make time to do it, it really isn't important to you. Yeah. You know, and so I, I've, I've made more time in my life for all kinds of things because <laughs> it makes you feel guilty by saying that's not important to me. Well, it should be. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's a good thing that you start off in January um, at least making the resolution to, to pray more so that the rest of the year you actually do make some time somewhere. To, yeah. to pray, whatever form it may be, whether it's Mass, whether it's a, a holy hour, whether it's the rosary, whether it's the Bible, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a Christian that doesn't pray is like a bird without wings. Mm. That's when I was in RCIA, one of the, the team leaders said, like, how often do you pray? And I was like, of course I pray. You know, <laughs> I'm a Christian, ain't I? But then I started thinking about it, and I said, like, on a regular basis, do I? No, I mm. pray if I'm at the hospital. Mm. Or, you know, if you see the lights go on behind you and you were going a little too mm. fast in the freeway, mm. you pray then. Mm. You pray when your heart starts fluttering weird and you think, like, oh, gosh, I'm taking a heart attack. <laughs> you know, there are certain times, turbulence on a plane, there were certain times yeah. I prayed. But did I regularly pray? No, I didn't. And then I felt so convicted, like, how? I'm going through all this. I'm going through RCI. I'm going to become Catholic. But I don't pray. Mm. So what sense is all this? You know? So I started praying, actually regularly praying. And it really has. It's changed my life. Yeah. yeah. And there's this thing, right, about um, uh, two things, actually. One is that you um, seek first the kingdom of God and everything will be added. And the second thing Ah. is that God wants us to be either hot or cold and not lukewarm. Right. So you you either burn (laughs) or you... you, 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 Well, because... The reason I, I, I never did really understand that, you know, like, why wouldn't you want to be lukewarm? It's better than being cold. Yeah. <laughs> the hardest people in the world to evangelize are Correct. people who think they're okay, yes. but they're not okay. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. like the person's like, yeah, I go to church, you know, once, whenever I get a chance. And <laughs> don't, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I like to tell them, well, so is Lucifer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> He's spiritual, but not religious too. Yeah. But. People like that are, I, and I know because I was that person mm-hmm. for most of my life. I was the lukewarm Christian. It's it's extremely hard to reach some people because they think they're okay. Like, uh, who was it? Uh, Antioch Epiphanes was dying in Second Maccabees. Mm-hmm. He's laying there dying and he's saying, you know, I was an all right guy and I, I didn't do too bad things and people's going to miss me. And he's kind of like going over his life. Yeah. And if you just read that one chapter, you think, like, well, this wasn't a bad guy. In the previous chapter, he had an entire family put to death by horrible means yeah. because they wouldn't worship him as a god. So, so he was a terrible guy, but he just thought he was an all right guy. And that's what a lot of us delude ourselves into thinking that, you know, we're not rapists or murderers. Like that's yeah. a measure of being a good person, yeah. you know? And not that being a good person even gets you anywhere anyway, because we're not Pelagius. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it isn't us that does it. It's God's grace that does yeah. it. And so you can be the best person in the world and still miss heaven by a mile. Yeah. Because you didn't do the will of God. You didn't cooperate with God's grace. You didn't repent. You know, mm. you didn't seek out God. You didn't turn to him. I think it's, 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 uh, in, I think it was uh, screw tape letters that, um, 
uh, Satan is actually training Screwtape and saying, just keep these people lukewarm and you have done your job. And it's quite oh, yeah. clear. Yeah. Yeah, because it's 100%. Because you can't, like, and I know from, like I said, from personal experience, people would say to me, like, well, you need to, you know, you need to pray more. You need to read the Bible more. I go, oh, no, I'm fine. I read the Bible plenty in church on Sunday. You know, like, <laughs> and then, like, and I went to church every Sunday. Like, that was the one thing that I stayed in touch with yeah. throughout my whole life. I only missed, like, maybe five Sundays early. <laughs> but just being there and yeah. just sitting there and not, yeah. you know, that's what, in, in uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, one of the Vatican, Second Vatican Council documents, it calls for the full, active, and conscious participation yes. of the faithful in the liturgy. Yeah. Just sitting in the pew, that isn't what you're called to do. do yeah. You're called to be there. You're supposed to pray along with the priest. When yeah. the priest says, my sacrifice and yours, Yeah. you know, you're bringing all of your hopes, desires, wants, and sufferings to yeah. the Mass. Yeah. You know, when he says, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of Calvary, because he's standing in persona Christi, yeah. my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to Almighty God our Father. Yeah. That's what we're bringing to the Mass. Yeah. And what are we bringing? Are we just sitting there and thinking about our taxes? <laughs> you know, or whatever, like the score in the football game, I can't wait to get out of here, Father, but I'm not on a long sermon today. You know? <laughs> Because <laughs> that's what I done for thirty years. <laughs> but it's true, and and I think uh, one of the things, and I keep saying this, yeah, uh, we have there are certain rules. Like I know even today, I mean, we went for mass, and there are people who will enter mass after the liturgy is over and still take uh like take communion. And the thing is, you should be participating in the liturgy because that is one of the most important parts of why you're there. Right. Yeah, why are you there? You're there to be present at the, the representation of the sacrifice of Calvary. Yeah. You know, you're not there just to get, like, a spiritual pill. Mm. You know, like, people take communion like it's some sort of good luck charm. Yeah. You know, and that's the wrong mentality to have. Yeah. You're receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Be there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> both in body and in spirit, but be yeah. there. Be present. Okay, so any last words about John Paul? Because I think we co we covered a lot yeah. of things with him. Yeah, we did. Uh, there was a book I read back in, uh, I can't remember when it was, like 10 years ago or so, back before I even started towards Catholicism, mm -hmm. I think. And it was called uh, The Pope, the President, and the Prime Minister. And it was about uh, John Paul, Ronald Reagan, and Margaret Thatcher, about how mm -hmm. they uh, brought down the Iron Curtain. Okay. It was fascinating. Okay, okay. I definitely recommend that. Okay. And uh, your own book is out now, so where can people find your own book? Uh, yeah, it's on Amazon.com. It's in uh, ebook, Kindle, and paperback, and it's called The Beauty of the Mass, Exploring the Central Act of Catholic Worship. Okay. And um, so you're going to help us do a giveaway too, right? Yep. <laughs> okay, so for all our listeners, uh, Charles is going to give a, a free copy uh, what are you going to do, print or uh, or e? Yeah, I'll do a uh, paperback version. Okay, so a paperback version for uh, one of our lucky uh, listeners for our 50th episode, which is going to be in May. So uh, thanks, Charles, for today, and um, we hope to see you, I think, in March now when we do, I think, the Stations of the Cross. Oh, very good. <laughs> I look forward to it. Yeah, not a saint for a change. <laughs> yeah. 